0: Daniel chapter 6, 1 through 28. And if you're joining us here in person, you'll see it on the screen behind me. If you're joining us online, you'll see it on your screen at home. But Daniel chapter 6, 1 through 28. And we've been reading the entire chapter every time, so uh, bear with me. But it's always just so good to get the entire picture rather than just a verse here and there. So Daniel chapter 6. This is God's word. It pleased King Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps. Satraps are kind of like governors over different provinces in Persia. But 120 satraps were governors to be throughout the whole kingdom. And over them three presidents of whom Daniel was one to whom these satraps should give account. So that the king might suffer no loss. Then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other presidents and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him and the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom when the presidents and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom but they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful and no error or fault was found in him then these men said we shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God Then these presidents and satraps came by agreement to the king and said to him, O king Darius, live forever. All the presidents of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps, the counselors and the governors are agreed. That probably wasn't true. I don't think they all agreed, maybe just a few. (laughs) But they all agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes petition to any god or man for 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document and injunction. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house, where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God, as he had done previously Then they answered and said before the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or the injunction you have signed, but makes his petition three times a day. Then the king, when he heard these words, was much distressed and set his mind to deliver Daniel. So the king liked Daniel. He wanted to set him free. And he labored till the sun went down to rescue him. Then these men came by agreement to the king and said to the king, Know, O king, that it is a law of the Medes and Persians that no injunction or ordinance that the king establishes can be changed. Then the king commanded and Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions. The king declared to Daniel, May your God whom you serve continually serve you or deliver you. And a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den and the king sealed it with his own signet. And with the signet of his lords, that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. Then the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. No diversions or entertainment were brought to him, and sleep fled from him. Then at break of day, the king arose and went in haste to the den of lions. As he came near to the den where Daniel was, he cried out in a tone of anguish. The king declared to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you from the lions. Then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lions' mouths, and they have not harmed me, because I was found blameless before him, and also before you, O king. I have done no harm. Then the king was exceedingly glad and commanded that Daniel be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den, and no kind of harm was found on him. Because he had trusted in his God. Verse 24. And the king commanded, and those men who had maliciously accused Daniel were brought and cast into the den of lions. They, their children, and their wives. And before they reached the bottom of the den, the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones in pieces. Then King Darius wrote to all the peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth. Peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in all my royal dominion before the people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel, for he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed, and his dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions, so this Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius. And the reign of Cyrus, the Persian. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, we give you all the glory. And Lord God, your word is holy and it is glorious. And it Father brings illumination. And so Lord God, illumine our minds, our hearts. Father God, open our eyes so that we may see the truths that you want us to know. So Lord God, thank you so much for the testimony of Daniel and his life. And everything that he represents for us. So may we learn from him today, in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, well finally, we are at the last chapter in the narrative section of the book of Daniel. So we are finally in Daniel chapter 6. And so Daniel's book is neatly divided into two parts, but the first six chapters are narrative. They're stories about Daniel's life. And then starting in chapter 7, it goes into prophetic uh, testimony, basically prophecies about the end times and the future. And we're basically going to be wrapping up this series right here in Daniel chapter 6. And we're going to be spending uh, two weeks on this chapter. But Daniel chapter 6 contains, as you guys know by now, the most famous story in the entire book. If you knew nothing about the book of Daniel before this series, you probably already knew about Daniel and the lion's den, right? Many of you guys grew up in church hearing this story. This story is familiar. It is beloved by both children and adults alike. And we know it so well that we probably don't know it at all. And what I mean is, it's so familiar to us, we probably don't see what it's really about. And what do I mean? Well, I don't think the story of Daniel and the lion's den is really about lions or dens or how to be like Daniel as a kind of heroic example. So I'm sorry, all you children who love that story and you think it's all about lions, But I think it's more than that. And there are a lot of ways that this story has been used in the past to teach us how to be like Daniel. So I've heard myself messages like, you need to be faithful like Daniel. You need to be blameless like Daniel. You need to be courageous like Daniel. And yes, Daniel, he's an amazing example, as we're going to see. But I don't think chapter 6 is mainly about how we must be like Daniel. And how we should be faithful to God. Okay, that's part of it. But that's not what it's mainly about. But I think the real point of the story is this. It's about God being the one who is faithful to us. Far more than us having to be faithful to God, it is about God being faithful to us. And how? By God making us into the kind of people who will be his witnesses and fulfill his purposes in this world. God is doing something mighty. He is doing something powerful in our lives. And he is faithful to do it. I believe this is what this story is about. And the kinds of people that God is making us into are exiles. Exiles. From the moment we put our faith into Christ and the Holy Spirit regenerates our souls, something amazing happens. It's a miracle. But God changes our citizenship from this world to heaven. We literally change our citizenship. Now, your physical address didn't change, most likely. You still live in the same street, uh, in the same neighborhood. You might still be in the same town that you grew up your whole life. And yet, everything has changed. Everything's changed. Your identity, your loyalties, your relationships, your values, your purpose, the way you see life itself, all, everything has changed. And you are now permanently out of step with the world around you. So you're an exile. Okay, that's what it means to be an exile. An exile literally means someone who no longer lives in their home country. But now you live in another person's country. So the moment Christ comes into your life, this change happens. And your home country goes from this world to now the heavenly abode, the heavenly world where God is. But we still live here. This is still where we reside, and that's why we are called exiles in the Bible. And as you continue to walk with God day after day, as the gospel continues to shape you more and more, you become more of an exile, not less. See, it's kind of counterintuitive. You would think the longer you live in this world as a Christian, the more you're going to get familiar with this world. No, the more you become alien to this world, the more you become strange and foreign to the people around you, not less. And it's incredible to see Daniel now in his 80s. So in chapter 5, we fast forwarded many, many years, and he's an old man now. And in chapter 6, it's just immediately after chapter 5. And Daniel now is still in his 80s, having served multiple kings at the highest level in both Babylon and Persia, And get this, but Daniel, as an old man, is still called what? In verse 13, he's called an exile. Daniel is still in exile. It says one of the exiles from Judah. And so in the eyes of the Persians and Babylonians, Daniel was a permanent exile. He was a forever foreigner. I remember back when I was younger, in the 90s, I was reading this article. It made me kind of sad, but that article talked about, written by an Asian American, talking about how Asian Americans are seen as forever foreigners in this country. I think things have maybe changed by now, 20 years later, but I was kind of sad to read that back then. I'm like, I'm a forever foreigner? I was born here. But we're forever foreigners. At least some people thought so. Well, this is Daniel. He was a forever foreigner. And by the way, every other believer as well. We are all forever foreigners in the eyes of the world. So now we have come full circle in the narrative of Daniel's life because when we first met Daniel in chapter 1, what was he? He was in exile from Judah, just a teenager, maybe 15 years old. And now fast forward many, many years and he's in his 80s now and he is still in exile at the very end of his life. And here's what's so amazing. But the very identity of an exile that was used against Daniel because when the people in chapter 6 called Daniel an exile from Judah, that was a slur, right? They were, they were putting him down. The very identity used against Daniel is the very thing that gave Daniel such power and influence. So the very thing that should be a weakness for us, that we don't belong here but we're living here, in God's eyes, that's the very power that you have in this world. And so likewise, like Daniel, the most powerful thing that you have when you go to work every single day, as you live your life, is your identity as an exile. Okay, that's what you bring into your company, into your hospital, into your schools, into your workplace, whatever you do. But the most powerful thing that you bring is your identity as an exile. Because you're in exile, with loyalties, allegiances, values, purposes that are not from this world, but you still live in this world, you have this kind of tension You have attention that you bring into your life, into the workplace, and that makes you powerful. Okay, what I mean is, because of this identity you have as an exile, you're kind of like a catalyst in chemical reactions. I was a science major, believe it or not, when I was in college, so we had to learn about enzymes and catalysts. But you're kind of like a catalyst that causes chemical reactions to happen. Wherever you go, whoever you're around, things begin to happen, things begin to change. Why? Because you're in exile. You're not intentionally trying to make things happen. You're not trying to stir the pot. But just simply being who you are in Christ, things happen. Things get stirred up. There are reactions. And again, this isn't because of your faithfulness to God as much as God's faithfulness in your life. It's more about God's faithfulness working in you. So today I want to look at the marks of an ex- exile. I want to see, what, well, what does this actually look like? To be like Daniel, to be an exile in this world. Especially as we face these persecutions and these lions in this world. So what does it look like to be an exile? And how does God use exiles to fulfill his purposes? So there are different marks. The first mark is the exile's excellence. The exile's excellence. And today each of these points is going to have a little subpoint, a subheading. And here's the subheading. The world can't live without you. The exile's excellence. The world can't live without you. Now Daniel chapter 6 picks up almost immediately after Daniel chapter 5. From 4 to 5, you jump like 25 years ahead, but from chapter 5 to 6, there's not a lot of time that has passed. It's almost immediately after. So at the end of chapter 5, the great Babylonian empire came to an end. Do you guys remember that? The Belshazzar, a terrible king, it got invaded, right? He was put to death. So on that last night of the empire, Darius led the Medes and the Persians to crawl under the walls of Babylon, and then they invaded the city, they killed Belshazzar, and they took over. So the great empire of Babylon fell. And during that event, Nabonidus, Belshazzar's father, was also captured by the Persians, and then he was sent into exile. So that meant no more kings over Babylon. The Persians have taken over. So now in chapter 6, we see Darius setting up a new government. There's a new king in town. And Bible scholars have different opinions on who Darius is, and the reason why there's a debate about this is because everyone knows when Babylon fell and the Persians took over, Darius wasn't the king, it was Cyrus. Everyone knows that. Historians know Cyrus was the king who took over Babylon. So who's this Darius figure? In ancient documents, this name doesn't come up. Well, historians have different theories, but I think the best one that I've heard is Darius and Cyrus are the same person. They were the same person but they were just using different names for different groups of people. So Darius was the name that this king used for the Medes. So Darius the Mede and Cyrus was the name that this king used when he was talking to the Persians. So Cyrus the Persian and Darius the Mede, but it was the same king, the same person. So that's one theory. But regardless, there was a new king in town. And here's Daniel now in his 80s in a completely new kingdom serving under the third king, And no matter who he served under, this is so incredible about Daniel. But what we saw in Daniel all throughout the book, we see Daniel now here. And what do we see? We see his excellence. We see Daniel's excellence. So look at verses 1, 2, 3. But it says here, It pleased Darius the king to set over the kingdom 120 governors or satraps to be throughout the whole kingdom. And over them three presidents, of whom Daniel was one, to whom these satraps should give account, so that the king might suffer no loss. Then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other presidents and satraps, because an excellent spirit was in him, and the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. So that's just amazing. Okay, we shouldn't be surprised by now because everything that we saw about Daniel throughout the book, we see again here, but he was excellent. Daniel was so good at what he did, and his character was so exceptional that King Darius couldn't live without him, because that's the way I put it. No doubt, it didn't take the king very long to hear about Daniel's reputation. I'm sure Daniel's reputation preceded him. They probably heard about Belshazzar and the handwriting, how Daniel interpreted that. Maybe they even heard about the dream that he interpreted for Nebuchadnezzar. But they knew about Daniel. And this new king in a new empire now also heard about Daniel. And then soon the king began to see for himself, you know, everything's true. Daniel is excellent. He is exceptional. Everything he touches, everything he does is exceptional. So it says in verse 3, Daniel had an excellent spirit in whatever he did. It says in verse 4, Daniel had integrity in whatever he did. It says in verse 21, Daniel had the best intentions for whoever he worked for. And this caused Daniel to always have this great relationship with his superiors. So remember, this is the third king now that he served under, and he had a great relationship with all of them except for Belshazzar. But he had a wonderful relationship with the people around him. And this caused Daniel to always have this influence wherever he was, but he was always the first one his superiors called on when they were in trouble, if they needed someone that they needed to trust, but they would always call Daniel. Daniel was always the first one to be considered for promotion, and that's why he rose in the ring so quickly. And remember again, he's in exile, right? He doesn't even belong in this empire. He's not even from this town, and yet he was always the first to be considered for promotion. It says in verse 2, the king made Daniel one of the three highest rulers in the kingdom. But even that wasn't enough. He was so excellent, King Darius wanted to make him the chief of the three highest rulers. In other words, vice president. If Darius was the king, the president, he wanted to make Daniel vice president, to use today's terms. And because of that, the rulers, the other rulers, became very jealous But even they couldn't find any faults in Daniel when they were trying to tear him down. They couldn't find any faults. So look at verse 4. Then the presidents and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom. But they could find no ground for complaint or any fault. Daniel was never in trouble. He never got reported to HR because he was faithful. Not only to God, but to the king to his co-workers, to everyone around him. He was faithful, and no error or fault was found in him. So do you guys get the picture here? I'm spending time on this because I want us to be clear on who Daniel was. Okay, exceptional, excellent in everything he did. He wasn't even from that area. He was in exile, and yet he excelled. Now, when most people hear this, okay, what do they think? Okay, What are you guys thinking? You're thinking... Go, Daniel. Right? Great. (laughs) That's awesome, Daniel. You were excellent, but it sounds unrealistic and unattainable. I mean, really, who can really be that excellent at work? I mean, how can this possibly be true of anybody here today? But here's what we need to remember: Daniel's exceptional qualities were not something he was born with. This wasn't something that he he just had through genetics. Because his parents were excellent. I mean, I don't even know who his parents were. Nobody does. But we know from chapter one, right from the beginning of the book, we know why he was so excellent. God gave him a spirit of excellence. That was mentioned in our chapter, in chapter six again. But it was a gift from God. It was a gift from God. So God had graciously given Daniel exceptional qualities because Daniel was in this covenant relationship with God. See, we got to be clear about that. Okay, why was Daniel so insanely excellent in everything he did? It's because God gifted him to be that way. In other words, Daniel's excellence was a result of God's covenant grace. And believers today, brothers and sisters, believers today are the same. Are you in a covenant relationship with God? If you have faith in Christ, if you've repented of your sins and now you are in Christ, yes, you are in a covenant relationship with God. Because of that relationship, do you now have covenant grace flowing into your life? Absolutely, you have covenant grace. The same grace Daniel had. And from Daniel's life, we know this is where excellence comes from. Okay, this is where it comes from. And this is the first mark of being in exile. See, when we hear the word exile, we think, oh yeah, somebody who's kind of like, you know, different. You know, they have different language, different culture. We think, a lot of other things, but when I look at Daniel's life, this is the first mark of being in exile. You are excellent. There is an excellent spirit upon your life. Faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ should make a positive difference in your life, amen? It really should. It should make a positive difference in your life that the world notices. It's a difference that comes from the outside world, meaning beyond this world. So you're in exile, That excellent spirit didn't come from within this world. It's from beyond, and yet you are still within this world. It's for this world. You're to use it in this world. And so as you receive this excellent spirit in relationship with God, and then you begin to use it for this world, you become an attractive exile. You're not just an exile. You're an attractive exile. And at times, you're going to become so vital to your employer, your company, to the people around you, in a real way, they can't live without you. And I've heard that. I've heard real testimonies of Christians who become so pivotal in whatever company, whatever place of employment they're at, they literally, the company can't survive without them. They are that pivotal. Now, am I saying you need to become like that? Every Christian should become like No, I'm not saying that. But the point is, is that's just the fruit of it. That's the outcome of this excellent spirit. So why, though? Why why am I saying that this relationship you have with God, this covenant grace in your life, why why should it produce excellence? Why is that the mark of an exile? Well, there are a few different reasons why. The first reason is because the gospel, God's covenant grace, dislodges you from the center of the universe. I'll say that again. It removes you, it dislodges you from being in the center of the universe. Because the gospel shows you how sinful you are, And yet, at the same time, how loved you are, that Christ would sacrifice everything to save you. That's what the gospel is, amen? It simultaneously tells you how sinful you are, but also how loved you are. And if you receive that into your heart, then fundamentally that'll shift you away from being in the center of the universe to now having something else in the center, God. It goes from me to him. I know this is very basic stuff, but we don't think about this oftentimes but it removes you from being the center of the universe. It fundamentally shifts you away from the center, right? Your life is not all about me. Why? Because again, the, the gospel says I'm the sinner; he's the savior who gave everything for me. And so that shifts you fundamentally. You, re, you realize the world does not revolve around me. Again, very basic, but very important. Okay, this is the first shift that should happen in a Christian's life. The first thing that should happen, and for some of us, maybe it hasn't happened yet, but the main purpose of life, you realize, is not my own happiness. And frankly, a lot of Christians still live their lives like that. When push comes to shove, when you really dig deep to the core of why you're living your life, well, I I just want to be happy. I'm pursuing my own happiness. Well, for the true exile, the true believer, that shifted. It's no longer about my own happiness. That's not why I live this life. It's not about the advancement of my own career. It's not about the accumulation of status and income. Yes, that was before. I was in the center of my own life, my own universe. No longer. I've been dislodged. And many Christians may know all that, but here's what they might not know. Here's what many Christians don't know. Is that this first step of being removed from being in the center of your own life, of the universe, is the first step towards excellence. that is the first step towards excellence. And why is that? It's because true excellence always comes in service to others. It comes in service to others. And even non-Christians, astute non-Christians have known this. But Ralph Waldo Emerson, the famous poet and writer, I like what he said, but he said, if you want to lift yourself up, lift up someone else. Even non-Christians know that. Okay, how are you going to live a life of excellence? A life that really changes and affects the world well quit living for yourself so even non-christians have figured that out and that is very true see let's say for example you are the most talented person on your basketball team maybe you're so good you're a professional player now and you are so talented you've been recruited you are the best player on that team but if you are selfish and everything revolves around you and so many basketball players nowadays that's the case right they're prima donnas (laughs) right, it's all about them, then what's going to happen? You will never truly be at the level of excellence you can be. And your team will never truly be as excellent as it can be. You won't be excellent. You could be the most skilled person at your job. You can be the greatest recruit, the most talented person on your team, in your department. But if you're selfish, if you're only there to advance your own career, to get more pay then you're never going to reach the true level of excellence that you can. And the team and the people you work with will never be as excellent as they can. Again, why? Because true excellence always comes in service to others. And this is why the gospel is that very first step towards excellence, because it dislodges you. Your life is no longer about me. I'm not the center of my own universe. Okay, I don't wake up every day pursuing my own happiness. That's not the purpose of my life. Okay, I am not my own purpose. There is a different purpose now. So that is the first step. So once we realize we're not the center of the universe, the gospel will also do something else. It will continuously protect us and keep us away from pride and fear. It'll keep these things in check, which will bring us back to being the center of the universe, but it'll keep these things in check. But Jonathan Edwards, he was the great pastor, he led uh, the revival, the great revival, the great awakening in America. But Jonathan Edwards said that the majority of people do good things out of fear and pride. I mean, very simple point, but it's true. But the vast majority of human beings, when you really boil down why do they do what they do, is because of fear and pride. And both of them are the same thing. They are different size to selfishness. They are different forms of selfishness. And yet pride and fear will motivate people to do good things for a while. So Edwards acknowledged that. He said, you know most people are motivated by these things, but they will produce some good things for a while. So, for example, how many of you guys have worked really, really hard to show someone you're better than what they think you are? Right? How many of you guys have been motivated by that? Maybe it's your parents. right? But you know what? I'm going to show people that I'm better than who they think I am. Well, if you're motivated by that, that's pride. That's a form of pride. How many of you have worked really, really hard because you don't want to fail like those other people who have failed, maybe failed out of the program? Maybe they didn't quite make the cut, right? You don't want to be like them. Well, what is that? Now you're motivated by fear. But both, whether it's pride or fear, it is selfishness. It is a self-centeredness. So we've all been motivated by these things. We've been motivated by pride and fear. We've been motivated to be excellent even because of pride and fear. But here's the danger. Okay, pride and fear also happen to be the exact same reasons why we sin. And here's the reason. It's because pride and fear are expressions of selfishness, right? They're just two sides to the same coin. Well, why do we sin? Because of selfishness. It's the same reason. And so when people are constantly motivated to do things out of pride and fear, even to be excellent, right? Even if you're actually doing good things out of pride and fear, and you're being excellent, at the very same time, you're feeding the same selfishness that will eventually cause you to sin. It's the same thing. So selfishness is kind of like this 500-pound tiger that's chained up in your bedroom. And as you're being motivated out of pride and fear, you're like feeding that tiger every day. You're feeding this huge 500-pound tiger in your bedroom every day, every day. And the selfishness grows and grows and grows until one day it breaks free. And then it just comes breaking out into your life and devours your life. And this is the reason why. And we shouldn't, we shouldn't be surprised by this, but this is why so many respectable people, right? Politicians and doctors and lawyers and teachers and all kinds of people doing good work out there, even pastors, okay, doing the most excellent things in society, suddenly the most crazy sins break out in their lives and then their lives collapse. Okay, they blow up. Why? Well, the reason why is because all along, what was motivating them? Most likely pride and fear. And that's selfishness. And so the same thing that drives sin was driving them to do all these good works. And so as they're doing these good works, they're feeding the very cause for their sin. Does that make sense? And so eventually, the sin just breaks out. And that, brothers and sisters, is not true excellence. That is not true excellence. I don't care what you've achieved in your work. If your motivation is pride or fear if it's you being in the center of your universe, if it's you trying to reach some goals that you have for yourself, that is not true excellence. But rather, the covenant grace of God gives you a different motivation for true excellence. Because the covenant grace of God, the gospel we have in Christ, dissolves pride and fear. It's kind of like the most powerful acid in the world. In fact, it's the only acid that can dissolve pride and fear. So how can I be proud about anything? When I truly look at Christ, I understand what he's done for me. How can I be proud about anything? When I look at the cross, when I look at Christ, I was condemned as a sinner under God's wrath. In fact, I was so hopeless, Jesus had to come and rescue me out of my place. Right? I had no hope. I couldn't rescue myself. So how can I be proud? But at the very same time, how can I be afraid? Right? How can I walk around being motivated by fear? Because when I was utterly lost, so lost that Jesus had to come and rescue me, Jesus did it because he loved me. Right? His love conquered my sin. His love is what came and rescued me. And now, because of his love, he will never leave me nor forsake me. So how can I be afraid? So do you see that? The gospel truly dissolves both. Your pride and your fear over time begins to melt away. And so the gospel, when it goes beyond just words to now a reality in your heart, as the spirit makes that real in your heart, as it truly begins to fill your heart, like the most powerful acid, your pride, your fear begins to dissolve away. And then soon, a wonderful thing begins to happen. You are motivated less and less out of pride and fear and more and more out of gratitude and a desire to honor Christ. Okay, these are very basic things, brothers and sisters, but this is where that excellent spirit comes from. Okay, you have brand new motivations. Okay, every day you wake up, is no longer about pursuing my own goals, my own happiness. Life doesn't revolve around me. Okay, I'm not working hard and being excellent because I need to be somebody or because I'm afraid to not be somebody, right? I'm not motivated by that anymore. There's a whole new set of motivations. And so now, as you have a brand new set of motivations, you want to honor Christ, you are thankful to Christ, then you no longer just look excellent, you will truly be excellent. Amen? You're going to truly be excellent. You're going to work hard, harder than ever before. You're going to do it not for yourself, but in service to others. You're going to be excellent not just when people are looking at you, but even when they don't look at you. And you will do all of it. Why? Why? Because you have the covenant grace of God. You know what Jesus has given to you. He gave his all to me. Now I want to give my all to him. In everything I do, I want to honor him. And people who truly begin to live like that, again, this might sound very basic to all of you, but so few Christians live like this. But as you begin to truly understand this and live like this, the world takes notice. The world will notice there's something different about you. You are excellent. You don't look like people here at this company. You you don't look like everyone here at this school. Something about you is very different. They take notice. There's a spirit of excellence on you. So these are the ways that spirit of excellence comes upon you. But here's one more way. Here's one more way the gospel brings excellence. But God in his grace has not only saved you, but he's also gifted you. Amen? God has gifted you. And these gifts are not from this world. You do not achieve these, you receive these. Amen? You receive them. You don't achieve them. Because they come from God. They come from above. And so they are given to us from above. They're beyond this world, and yet they are meant for this world. God gives them to us so that we will use them in this world. So our gifts are not from here, but they are meant to be used here in the same way that we are not from here, right? We're exiles. But we live here. Our gifts are the same way. And once we understand that, that we are exiles who have been gifted by God, by his covenant grace, gifts from above, but they're meant to be used here, then something incredible happens. I like what this one Christian CEO said. He leads a very successful company. He actually even went to seminary, but then God brought him into business. But he says, you will begin to see your work as a craft, as a craft. Do you know what a craft is? A craft is not just a job where you go there and get a paycheck. A craft is something that you know you're uniquely gifted to do, and you also have this kind of sense of calling. But it's a craft. You know, think about like Picasso or or famous musicians, but but they have a craft, right? Or people who go and build incredible things. Okay, why do they do it? Even if it's maybe something on the computer, they're, they're building things digitally, but they have a craft. And these people, they're incredibly motivated. They're very passionate. They have a sense of calling, even if they're not a believer. They know, I don't know why, but, but, you know, this universe, they talk about the universe, has given me these skills. And I feel kind of called to do this. And so they begin to see their work as a craft. And so maybe it's kind of like a, a woodworker, and you've been trained under this master woodworker who has spent hours and hours with you, teaching you how to, you know, carve wood, and he gave you all of his knowledge, all of his tools, he's gifted you, right? And after he's invested all of that time, gave you all that time, all that training, all those gifts, those tools, now he wants you to go and use it, right? He wants you to go and make something to serve and bless others. So that's a craft, that's what a craft is. You never learn a craft so that you just use it for yourself and nobody sees it. You make it so that others can be blessed by it. Well, if you have that view of your work, then now your work radically changes. It's very different how you approach work. But now it's no longer something you're doing just to get paid, just to advance in your career, just to be happy. But now this is a craft, right? I have been gifted by God. These gifts come from beyond this world, but they're meant to be used in this world. And God has invested in me. He's given me these gifts. He works with me, right? Every day he's sanctifying me, he's training me, he's discipling me so that I can use these gifts In this calling, right, you can even call it a calling. Whether it's coding, whether you're teaching people, whether you're making stuff, I don't know, you're healing people as a doctor, whatever you may be doing, but this is a calling and it's a craft. And as you begin to see your work like that, the spirit of excellence just comes out. This is where excellence begins, brothers and sisters. This is where, where it really begins to pour out. Okay, I work for the sake of the one who gifted me. See, this is far different than I go to work to get paid. I go to work so that I can be happy, so so that I can live on the weekends, right? No, I go to work for the sake of the one who gifted me. I work for the work itself, for the craft itself. I work so that eventually others can be blessed by this. This is why I'm here. God has gifted me. And for some of you, this might sound so foreign, you're like, really? But I know Christians. Actually, my mom is like this. But she's an acupuncturist. She really believes God has gifted her to do this. She learned it in her old age, went through school. She had to get board certified. I mean, it was no joke. I mean, she had to take a lot, a lot of classes, study for hours and hours. And she really believes God has gifted her to do this. And she has a growing clinic right now in her 70s. She's in her 70s doing this. And she sees it truly as a craft. It's not just a job. Her getting paid is just kind of incidental for her. It's just a craft. She wants to serve God. She wants to be excellent for God. But she's not the only one. I've talked to other Christians who really see their work like that. They say, you know what? I don't know about anything else. I mean, you know the Bible way better than I do, Roy, but I do know God has given me the gift of business, and I'm going to use everything I know about business to glorify God. It is a craft for them. right? I'm just so good at finance and You know, understanding markets and building business and organizational leadership and all of that, and they truly see it as a craft. And so, as they have this understanding, God has not only saved me by covenant grace, He has gifted me. There's a calling. Excellence begins to flow. And when I look at Daniel, I really believe this is the kind of excellence he had. Daniel, he wasn't just there to get paid, he wasn't there to just check off the calendar. Mark off the counter. But he knew there was a calling. He knew God had given him this spirit. He was there to serve. For him, it was in the realm of politics. But for him, politics was a craft. This is my craft. And guess what happened? The king took notice. Amen? The king took notice. And in fact, the chapter makes it clear that King Darius couldn't live without Daniel. This is why when the other rulers got jealous and plotted against Daniel, the king knew, Right? The king knew right away, right when they accused Daniel and then persecuted Daniel and then the king got trapped, he was grieved in his spirit because he's like, oh my gosh. It just dawned on him what all of this was really about. Darius, like Daniel, he needed Daniel. He saw Daniel as excellent. Okay, he needed that excellence. But the story does not end there for the exile. Okay, it's not just about being excellent. But here's another mark of an exile, the exile's courage, the courage of an exile. And here's the sub-point, the world can't live with you, <laughs> right? So the first point is the world can't live without you. Well, here's another quality of an exile, the world can't live with you. The world can't live with you, and that's why you need courage. Look at verses 9 through 10. It says, therefore King Darius signed the document and injunction, When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. And he got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. So here in the span of just one verse, from verses three to four, everything changed for Daniel. He went from rising high, he was about to be second in command of the entire empire, to now suddenly he was about to get thrown to death into the lion's pit. And that's what the word den really means. It means like a pit that was dug into the ground and lions were there, hungry lions, used as a method of execution. But Daniel was about to lose everything, his very life. And yet, it's amazing here, but Daniel, in the midst of this, even as he was facing death itself, he had this incredible courage. But he had this ability to just see what was real and he just went to the window three times a day and he just prayed okay he prayed towards jerusalem now this wasn't something mystical or superstitious but he was just trying to obey solomon's command in second Chronicles seven god commanded solomon and then solomon told the people if you are ever in trouble look towards this temple and pray so daniel was simply doing that but what was going on here So, so why was daniel in so much trouble he was about to rise to the very top. So now why was he in so much trouble in need of so much courage? Well, the surface level answer is there was jealousy. The other rulers got jealous of Daniel. But here's the deeper answer. The same excellence that came from Daniel's relationship with God and that came from God's grace, his covenant grace. Okay, the same grace that made him attractive to the world now made him difficult to the world. Okay, that's the deeper answer. The same grace that was flowing in Daniel's life and made him excellent is what made him difficult to understand. It made him difficult to control and difficult to assimilate. These rulers didn't know what to do with Daniel. Daniel, okay, you're excellent, but we don't like you, right? I mean, you're difficult to know and understand. You don't fit in here. And so the bottom line why this happens is because the world does not understand the gospel. And they do not understand where we stand in the gospel. They simply can't understand it. Although the world likes the excellence, integrity, and compassion in Christians and in a believer's life, they'll never understand the source of all these things, that these things actually come from the covenant grace of God. They come from our relationship with Christ. They come from our citizenship in heaven. And because they don't understand where all of this comes from, we're forever outsiders. So Christians will always be susceptible to misunderstanding. We're always going to be on the outside. We're always going to be misunderstood. There's going to be jealousy and even hatred. And so this is the second mark of every true exile. No matter who you are, what kind of work you do, the world is going to not understand you. They're going to even resent you, even hate you. Jesus said the world will hate you because they hated me first you know i remember coming across this one interesting article it was on tim tebow uh most of you guys know who he is in case you don't he's a football player he used to be but he played for the denver broncos but it was a very interesting article but it said why the heck the title was why the heck do we hate tim tebow (laughs) so i'm like okay let me read why do people hate him And basically, Tim Tebow, he was a football player, but he was also a very committed Christian. He wasn't that, you know, outspoken about it, but he was very clearly a Christian. He uh, was born to missionary parents in the Philippines. And then once he became a professional football player, he wasn't shy about his faith. And people hated him for it. But this is what the article said. But it said, I could not figure out, the author said, I could not figure out what was causing this onslaught of venom for a guy almost everybody claims to like. And I finally decided it was more about us. Tebow makes us uncomfortable. He is a reminder that the blue, red, liberal, conservative fight over taking God out of everyday life is intellectually dishonest. Tebow is proof that God goes, I'm sorry, Tebow is proof that God goes comfortably into whatever arena of life you wish to take him. And then the author went out to say, that makes people squirm, not because what he's doing is wrong, but because it's right. And then she closed the article with these words, Tebow rarely lectures and does not fight back. He did not create Tebowing. Tebowing is when you kneel in the end zone. It was kind of like this meme. But Tebowing, he didn't create that, nor is he responsible for a blowing up hipster style. It was kind of cool, I thought, after hearing a kid have said he was Tebowing while getting chemo. Tebow is just a guy with the good sense to say thanks. Instead of taking his cue, we mock his faith. And that says more about us, none of it good. So I thought that was very insightful. I thought that was helpful. But here's this guy who looks so excellent. He's so good at what he does. He's actually a very likable person. He doesn't say anything that's spiteful. And yet over time, people just hated him. He had this tension in his life. The world couldn't live without him, and the world didn't want to live with him, right? Both. You know what I mean. (laughs) but he was hated and he was loved at the same time. And a lot of people, they might not like Tebow, but at least his faith was being talked about, unlike a lot of other Christians in the NFL. And how many Christians do you think there are in the NFL, in professional sports, who are just like him? Many, probably dozens. And yet so many Christians don't live with this kind of tension. But Thibaut did, he does, and so did Daniel. He, they were both attractive and yet very disturbing to the world. And so this was their witness. You know, I, I remember hearing a pastor once say that every time the gospel was preached, there was either a revival or a revolt. And it's true. Every time the true gospel of God goes forth, when God is moving in a person's life or even in a city, there is revival or revolt. And likewise, if your life is rooted in the gospel, if you're being transformed by the gospel, okay, day after day, of God's presence is real in your life, there's gonna be something. You know, earlier I said it's kind of like a catalyst, right? There's a reaction. You're gonna have revival or revolt. And oftentimes, in this day and age, it's gonna be more revolt than revival. I wish it was the other way around, but oftentimes it'll be more revolt. And when revolt comes, when opposition comes, and this is the reality for an exile. Opposition will come. You will need courage. You will need courage. And that's why the second mark of an exile is that you have courage. Okay, not only excellence, but courage. Daniel's courage throughout his life really culminated in chapter 6. But throughout his life, he had this tension of being this witness, right? He was both liked and hated. And he had courage throughout, but it really climaxed and it culminated here. So think about this. But his greatest persecution came at the end of his life, brothers and sisters. So if you think things are tough now, if you're like, oh yeah, you know, I'm kind of getting the hang of this and, you know, maybe I'm getting beyond it now and I'm figuring things out. No, you're not. I'm not either. And the reason why is because persecution may come, the greatest, may come at the end of your life. Okay, this tension in your life of being loved and hated might grow even more. It will grow. And so Daniel faced the greatest persecution at the end of his life, not the beginning. And Daniel, in the face of that, had great courage. So let me just talk for a moment where this courage came from. This courage came from his faith, clearly. Courage is always connected closely to faith. Courage is not the same thing as faith, faith is trust, it is a full hearted leaning on God. But courage is always connected to faith. It's always right there next to faith, kind of like a sister or a close cousin. It's always right there. But in the book of Hebrews in chapter 11, the great hall of faith, as the Bible is going through testimony after testimony of people having amazing faith, and every single expression of faith, what do you see? Expression of courage as well. Because every expression of faith in Hebrews 11 also requires courage. So for example, when Abraham left his father's home, to an unknown land, was that faith? Yes, that was faith. Did that require incredible courage? Yes. When Moses fled Egypt because he killed somebody, but then God told him, go back there, and I want you to do a work for me, a great work, was that a step of faith, to go back? Yes. Did it require incredible courage? Yes. When Rahab, the prostitute, hid the Jewish spies, was that an act of faith? Because she knew there is a God, and this God is now gonna come into this land. Was that an act of faith? Yes. Was that also an incredible act of courage? Yes. She could have been found out and killed for that. So what I'm saying is courage is always always closely connected to faith. In fact, courage flows from faith. This deep abiding trust in God, a wholehearted leaning on God. And so Daniel was courageous because his faith was consistent. He had this vibrant faith. Now, I'm not saying courage only comes from faith. In the Bible, courage comes from many different things. It also comes from right living as you live rightly. As you are living in a certain way in God's will, then you'll have courage. Okay, the the righteous are as bold as lions, the Bible says. You can also gain courage through the brotherhood, the sisterhood of other believers. So courage also comes through that. The New Testament talks a lot about that. But here in the book of Daniel, it's so clear. The main source of Daniel's courage was his consistent faith. Consistent faith. So twice in verses 16 and 20, Darius said Daniel served his God what? How did Daniel serve his God? Continually, right? In those verses. The God whom you serve continually, Daniel, maybe he'll save you. The God whom you serve continually. So Daniel had this consistent, continual faith that was deep, that was daily See, it wasn't a Sunday-only faith. It wasn't a help-me-when-I'm-in-trouble-only faith. But it was a faith that actually showed up every single day. Every single day, he would get up and pray three times towards Jerusalem as an expression of his faith. Every day, he would commune with the living God. Every day, he's receiving information from the living God. And that's why he wrote so many incredible prophecies. But he had this daily abiding faith. And this is why when this edict finally got passed, That, O king, may there be an edict that for 30 days, nobody prays to nobody but you. And by the way, that wasn't some sort of a pagan law that said Darius was some sort of a god. No, Darius knew he wasn't a god. But rather, this was saying, Darius, you're the only mediator to all the gods. So Darius, you're the only mediator to all the gods. So may there be a law that people only pray to you. And when Daniel heard it, what does it say? Daniel got up, went to his room upstairs, opened the window, and did what he did every day. He prayed three times. He just had this continual faith. And so look at his courage. It says in Daniel 6.13, Then they answered and said before the king, This Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king. How many of us are like that at work? Or for that matter, any other area of life? This is an expression of courage that comes from that faith, that continual faith. He pays no attention to you. See, your boss is saying all this stuff that really comes against your faith, even asking you to do things that directly oppose your faith. Oh my gosh, right? How many of us would say, I pay no attention to that? (laughs) It doesn't matter. There are these coworkers all around me, and they're constantly saying things to me that are tempting me. I pay no attention to that. This was Daniel. He paid no attention to you, O king, for the injunction you have signed, but makes his petition, his prayers, three times a day. So he just went right on what he always did, every day. The God whom you serve continually. This pagan king even knew. Daniel, you're excellent. But you also have this kind of faith in God. And because of that, now he had this incredible courage. So I want us to notice how this courage came in the form of spoken words and also no words. So it would be a mistake to say, well, Daniel stood against all these things without talking. He, yes, in this chapter, he didn't speak, it was really highlighting who he was. He was an exile, he was excellent, he had courage. But all throughout the book, in the previous chapters, we know he spoke a lot. So this courage came through speaking and not speaking, but it came through both. In fact, I was actually tempted to speak another uh, message on chapter 5 last week. I was tempted to do three messages. But Daniel, with incredible courage, came to Belshazzar, who could have just murdered him on the spot and spoke those words describing the writing on the wall. But he stood up to the king with words. So Daniel used words, but here he didn't use words. It was through his actions. So courage came through both. Courage also came through acting and not acting. So earlier in chapter 3 with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they had courage by not acting, right? Everybody was commanded to bow down to the idol, and they wouldn't bow down. So that was incredible courage. They resisted by not acting. Well, here Daniel was the opposite. He had incredible courage by acting. Here, the law was, don't pray to anybody but the king, the human king. And then Daniel said, no, I'm going to keep praying to God, the one true king. So he did it by acting. So whether it's no words or words, whether it's acting or not acting, courage comes in many different ways. And brothers and sisters, we're going to talk a lot about this in the weeks ahead, in the next sermon series, which I'm already working on. But in the next sermon series, in the months ahead, we're going to talk a lot more about the courage that we're going to need in our day and age because we really do live in unprecedented times. You know, I was listening to this one theologian philosopher, Carl Truman, but he talked about how, you know, people say that all the time, we live in unprecedented times, right? Wow, things are crazy. Everyone thinks things are crazy in their generation. But he said, but as I've studied history, as, I, as I've studied the thoughts of, of what has happened over the course of human history, he's like, we really do live in unprecedented times. When people have now come to a fundamental new view of humanity, of human nature, People have a fundamental mistrust of institutions. There are levels of depravity around the world that we've never seen before. And he's like, we live in unprecedented times. And because of that, Christians are gonna be facing new challenges that we've never faced before. But we need to have incredible courage as we face all these things. But there are three areas that I think um, persecution will come. Three areas where we're gonna need incredible courage against. I'm just gonna mention them. I'm going to talk about these things more in the months ahead. But three areas: ideologies, spiritualities, and depravity. But these are all areas that are coming towards us in greater and greater ways. But 1 Timothy 4:1. Now the Spirit expressly says that in the latter times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits. Okay, that's a false kind of spirituality. You know, paganism is on the rise, false religion is on the rise. And I remember hearing this one survey, but in the last 10 years, paganism in the U.S. and the West has grown a hundredfold. Not a hundred percent, but a hundredfold, a hundred times. So that would be one expression. And there are people right around you, even in your workplace. You know people who probably are exploring this, and they're getting caught up in this kind of false spirituality. And the Bible makes it clear, these things are demonic. But spiritualities... And then it goes on, 1 Timothy 4.1. They devote themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. Other translations say doctrines of demons. And doctrines of demons, I would call them ideologies. But there are ideologies that on the surface, they have sentiments that you can agree with, right? Oh, yeah, you know, like, for example, wokeism. Okay, wokeism. It's an ideology that's out there, is growing. And on the surface, it looks like something you can agree with. Of course, right, these sentiments of justice and fairness and getting rid of racism and Black Lives Matter, and these are all sentiments we can all agree with, and yet underneath the surface of that, the Bible is very clear. These are doctrines of demons. And I don't have time to get into all this, but even non-Christians are tracing the origins of these things. Some of you guys might not be familiar. You're like, what are you talking about? Well, I'm just talking about, you know, these ideologies that are growing right now in our culture. Okay, things that are demanding a certain view of the world, a certain set of values, a certain set of behaviors, a certain kind of speech. Right? You're not allowed to say certain things, but you can say only these things. And they're very controlling. You need to align with their view of justice, equity, fairness. And if you don't, then you're canceled, you're out. Right? They can even ruin your life. Okay, these kind of ideologies. Well, the Bible is very clear there's something deeper going on. Okay, these are doctrines of demons. And like I said, even non-Christian philosophers and historians are are beginning to see this more and more. And so that's one area. And then the last area is depravity. Depravity. You're seeing this growing. But 2 Timothy 3, 1. But understand this. Very similar. Paul repeats what he said in the first letter. But understand this, that in the last days there will be times of difficulty for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving, good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. So I'll just leave it there. All these things are growing and they're increasing. You know, Jill and I, we were going to go see this movie uh, this past weekend. We couldn't, but it's called Sound of Freedom. Um, You guys might want to check it out, but it's on the growing slave trade, child sex trafficking, But it is by far the fastest-growing criminal enterprise in the world. They said it's about to overtake the drug trade. Isn't that amazing? The drug trade is worldwide, and yet human trafficking is about to overtake it. And so they estimate about 2 million children. Many of them are children. Children are being trafficked. They're being abused. Uh, There's organ harvesting. Even the UN had a whole meeting on that. There's organ harvesting going on and children being murdered even through that abuse. And so all of that's going on. There's a movie that came out, you know, talking about that. But this is the depravity all around. So I'll just leave it at that, but these are all different potential areas where we need to stand up, brothers and sisters. Okay, not every cause is our cause. But as these things come before us, we must speak up. We must speak up. Whether with words or no words, whether with action, by acting or not acting, we must speak up. Okay, you must and I must have courage like Daniel. That is the life of an exile here. And then briefly, let me just close with this. We're actually running out of time. But the exile salvation, and this is the last point. So we see the excellence, the courage, and then finally the salvation of the exile. And here's the subheading, the subpoint. The world's lions can't harm you. So look at verse 19. Then at break of day, the king arose and went in haste to the den of lions As he came near to the den where Daniel was, he cried out in a tone of anguish. The king declared to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God whom you serve continually been able to deliver you from the lions? Then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lions' mouths, and they have not harmed me because I was found blameless before him and also before you, O king. I have done no harm. Then the king was exceedingly glad and commanded that Daniel be taken out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den and no kind of harm was found on on him because he had trusted in his God. So eventually, even though the world liked Daniel and needed Daniel, they threw him into the lion's pit. So in he went. And the lions here have very uh, interesting meanings symbolically. Of course, it represented real lions. But first, lions in the Old Testament, they represent the injustice of evil men. And that's what this is. This was the injustice of these wicked rulers who are jealous, wanted to get rid of Daniel. So you see that. Lions can also represent the justice of God. So you see that as well. So they represent both. And in these two symbolic meanings, we get the final characteristic of the exile who changes the world. The exile is a Christian who is no longer harmed by the injustices of this world. The, The lions cannot harm him or her. But Daniel faced the lines that literally represented the injustice of evil men. And was Daniel destroyed by that? No. Daniel was delivered from that injustice. In fact, there was not even a scratch on him. So lots of people stop here and say, okay, the moral of the story is trust God, be faithful to God, and he'll deliver you, right? All your problems, all your persecution, he'll deliver you. End of story. No. The only problem is that moral doesn't come true oftentimes, right? That story doesn't end that way usually for a lot of other Daniels in the world. Okay, that's not even our story oftentimes. Okay, what do I mean? Well, you're living faithfully here as an exile and as people like you, but they also hate you and then you get persecuted eventually, things don't always work out. You're not always delivered. In fact, many people have lost their lives in the face of persecution. So how can I say the exile is a Christian who no longer is harmed by the lions in this world, the injustices of this world? Well, we're coming to a close, and here's the answer. The answer is the salvation of Daniel in the lion's den is not only a salvation here and now. It's not just representing the natural salvation, the physical salvation, but it points to a greater salvation from a greater lion's den. And I always bring it back to this. But this story is not just salvation from the injustice of evil men here and now but it's also salvation from the justice of a holy God. See, it's pointing to a greater salvation from a greater lion. See, when Daniel went into the lion's den, he was spared. And in verse 22, Daniel tells us how. It says, my God sent his angel, the angel of the Lord. And several commentators believe that this angel is the same person who showed up in the furnace. Remember Shadrach and Benny, if you guys like VeggieTales? Shadrach and Beni is Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But when Shadrach and Beni were thrown into the furnace, the fourth person showed up. Well, many commentators believe this angel that showed up in the lion's den is the same person. And so who is this angel of the Lord that keeps showing up? It's none other than the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. It was Jesus. And so this means the story of Daniel in the lion's den is so much more than just trust God, be faithful, and he'll deliver you out of all your problems. Okay, it's so much more than that. In fact, if that's all this is teaching us, then I'm gonna leave very discouraged. You know why? Because I can't be faithful like Daniel. I don't have the excellent spirit that he has or to that level. Okay, I can't follow God the way Daniel did. And so most likely, if I'm facing persecution, maybe I'm gonna die. Maybe God won't deliver me if it's all dependent on my faithfulness. But that's not the story here. But rather, when we look at the lion's den, we should realize Jesus was the one who is faithful. And he was in that den and he closed the mouths of the lions so that Daniel would be delivered. See, Daniel wasn't delivered because of his perfect faith or even his excellence, but it was because of God's faithfulness on him. See, God, from the beginning to the end, gave Daniel everything. God gave him the excellent spirit, God gave him the courage, and then God brought the deliverance. So now do you see why at the very beginning I said this isn't about our faithfulness to God, it's about his faithfulness to us. So Jesus was there and delivered Daniel. And so when we look at the lion's den, we should be reminded of how Jesus climbed into a very different den of lions for us. And then he closed the mouth of a very different lion for us. It was the den of God's justice, amen? And the the mouth of God's justice, his holiness, that was about to devour us because we are all sinful and the wages of sin is death. We deserve death in his wrath. And yet Jesus climbed in and closed the mouth of that lion with his very own blood. And he sealed our salvation once and for all. Nothing will ever change. And so this means because I'm in Christ, God will never judge me according to my sins. He will never judge me whether how excellent I am or not, whether how courageous I am or not. He will never judge me based on that. But rather, he gives me grace and saves me regardless of that And so then, now I can be excellent, I can be courageous, and I will be delivered. So ultimately, this is the story of uh, brothers and sisters of Daniel. And so I want to encourage you, can you overcome the injustices in this world? You know, as we're living in a new, unprecedented time, you know, in the past I talked about how there were different worlds uh, that we've been passing through, now we're a negative world. As we're facing many things in this world, and things are going to be coming. I'm going to be talking more about this in the months to come. But as things begin to come towards us more and more, can you be excellent? Can you be courageous? Will you be delivered? Well, I don't know about here and now in the physical, but I do know this. Ultimately, eternally, every single one of those things, the answer is yes. Absolutely yes. So the exile will be saved ultimately from those lions. And by the way, all the lesser lions in life as well. Because Daniel, his name actually means God is my judge and God has already judged all these things. Okay, is paid, is done. And so now I can live this life. I can live it with excellence, with courage before him. Amen? So let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much, Father. We give you all the glory. And Lord God, I know there was a lot of material that I felt like I wanted to cover, and we went a little longer, but Lord Jesus, I pray and ask that you would please, Father, that you would work, even through this story here, Daniel and the lion's den, that you would work through this story, that you will enable us to have the same understanding that Daniel did, the same kind of faith that Daniel had, a faith in your unearned, unconditional covenant grace, the grace of Jesus Christ. So Lord God, give us that same kind of faith and through that, Lord, we will have the same excellence and courage that he had, the same ability to face whatever injustices, whatever things, persecutions will come our way. So Lord God, we thank you so much, Lord. We give you all the glory and all the praise. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Okay, let's just come before the Lord for a brief moment. We're gonna keep it brief and pray. But let's ask God, let's ask him to help us. And I'm going to have to keep this brief. But let's ask him and then we're going to come to a close with benediction.